Marlene Laurel is a research professor of international affairs and political science at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. She is an expert on the culture and anthropology of Russia, plus all of the Stan Central Asian countries as well. She's written 10 books on these subjects, and she was just the most magnificent guest to have recorded a podcast with. We start in Kyrgyzstan, uh, which is a place she lived for several years. We then move on to religion and what Marlene thinks is a global wave of desecularization. We then move into Murmansk and the frozen tundra cities of Siberia's north, then to Russian demographics, and finally to the current state of affairs on the Russian war. Marlene was an absolute legend. I had such a good time recording this podcast with her. So for her and for me, and for 200 reviews before year end, please stop what you're doing right now, pull your phone out of your pocket, swipe up, go into the app and press the five star button. Whether that's in Apple or whether that's in Spotify, nothing moves the needle more than these reviews. So stop what you're doing, pull out your phone, swipe up. And thank you very much. Thank you very much. You are an absolute legend. And with absolutely no further ado, here is the wonderful Marlene Laurel. Um, yeah, I was just, we were just talking Kyrgyzstan. So you spent a bit of time there. Tell us about that country. Kyrgyzstan, well, it's a wonderful mountainous country, um, close to China, close to Tajikistan and the rest of Central Asia, close to Kazakhstan. I was, I worked there for several years when I was uh, um, a PhD student and then a young scholar. I did a lot of things <laughs> in Central Asia, so I travel all through the, the the five countries. And yeah, Kyrgyzstan is a either wonderful one. Does Kyrgyzstan have any geopolitical significance? Well, it's a small country, so it's mostly act as a client, unfortunately, of Russia mm -hmm. or China. But you could also reverse right, the vision and say that <laughs> small countries, especially those in Central Asia that are between big, great powers, have their own geopolitical um, uh, strategies, right? They, are, they can support or challenge both Russia and China, and they have often more agency that we want to imagine. Right? There is a real trend in international relations in kind of valorizing the role of small countries and saying that, well, they may have more leverage than we imagine <laughs> compared to, to great powers. Do you know the phrase uh, punching above your weight, what yes. that means? <laughs> Which is a country that geopolitically, in that same vein you just mentioned, punches above its weight the most? Oh, that's a good question. Probably a lot of post-Soviet countries <laughs> would fit that definition, right? They may be small, but they are ambitious. And those Mongolia? Have... No, I think Mongolia is, is pretty reasonable, right? It has a good vision of its own possibilities and limitations, right? And it has a very carefully crafted foreign policy. I think other countries like Azerbaijan, for example, because they were, they are rich in oil, tend to be super ambitious on what they think they can do. I mean, sometimes it works for them, as they just did in Nagorno-Karabakh. Right? Kazakhstan has also a lot of ambitions, but he also has, it has a real kind of regional power status. But they, they, are, they as, aspire to more than that. 
just on Kyrgyzstan for a little bit longer, you said you lived there for several years. I mean, the photos I see of the place are just phenomenal. You could maybe say it's the most beautiful country in the world. I don't know. Um, but what's appealing to you about the culture of the Central Asian countries? Well, the fact that they are between different culture, right? That they have this kind of Muslim identity, uh, Turkic language, not for Tajikistan, but for the others. 150 years of Russian and Soviet domination close to China. For Kyrgyzstan, the, the nomadic past is also a very strong, I think, element of attraction, especially for, for, for Western observers. So it's this kind of incredible mix of different layers of civilization, culture, you know, a way of managing hybridity and fluidity of identity that I think is really fascinating for the region. Yeah. How religious are they on a, a secular to fundamentalist spectrum? So they have evolved a lot since the collapse of the Soviet Union 30 years ago, right? So the five Central Asian countries are majority, uh, by majority are Muslim, but they still, some of them have strong Russian minority, which are uh, uh, Christian Orthodox. But I would say they emerged in the 90s as pretty secular because the Soviet regime was an atheist regime. So <laughs> the, the religion was not very welcome, except in a very folkloristic way. And then they gradually are becoming more and more religious. So this high level of religiosity is now is often associated with Islamism. But I think it's slightly misleading because it's not so much it's not Islamism necessarily in the sense of a political Islamism or any form of, you know, radicalization, even if you have that also. It's just kind of changing your everyday life to fit the image of what a, a good Muslim is. So it's kind of following Islamic rules, you know, uh, uh, in terms of habits, food, tradition, worldview. And you can see that younger generations are much more religious than previous uh, a generation that they are their their father and mother in Soviet time. So religiosity is increasing, and in Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, Islamism as a kind of political ideology that you think can apply to the state is rising, right? But I wouldn't say the whole society is favoring that. So it's country that in the forthcoming years or decade may have tensions between those who push for a more Islamic society or Islamization of the state and those who would like to keep a pretty secular identity. So the regions has a lot of these tensions. If the Soviet Union pummeled a lot of these old religions um, and made more atheism, why did they bounce back towards Islam and not just continue on the trajectory towards more secularization? Well, first, because even during Soviet time, there was resistance to this atheist culture, right? People were trying to preserve faith, either as a cultural or element of their national identity, or really in terms of religion, like believing in God. And then I think at the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was this kind of, you know, conservative backlash that you want to recover what you think is your genuine, authentic identity that has been destroyed or hidden by the Soviet regime. And so that kind of fostered this rediscovery. And I think if you look worldwide, you can see a global trend of desecularization. I think people are gradually, even if in Western countries, 
kind of react. I mean, the U.S. is very specific because the U.S. was abnormally <laughs> highly religious for Western countries. But if you look in the, the, the Western European countries that are deeply secularized, you can see a revival either of faith itself or small group or just of religion as a cultural feature, right, of your identity that you want to be fine, not something you want to hide anymore. So I think you have this kind of global trend of desecularization that are visible everywhere. Also, at, you know, the death of ideology at the end of the Cold War, I think is getting <laughs> reshaped now. And you can see that, well, people need, you know, set of beliefs and things that give them a, a sense and a meaning to life. And religion is one of these core elements. So it's attractive. That's such a fascinating idea that I'd never heard of, the global trend of desecularization. What's the evidence for a global trend of desecularization? So it's very diverse, of course, depending on the country, depending if it was kind of, you know, Western, highly developed economically, already highly secularized countries, or if it's more global south. Uh, countries, if it's Muslim countries or not. So you have a lot of criteria to take into consideration. But let's say that for the global north, right, Western countries, you can see a trend of indeed desecularization, that is people claiming their religious identity. Doesn't mean they go to church, right? Doesn't mean they are practicing religion, but they integrate religion as part of their identity more than it was, for example, in the 50s or 60s. And I think it's a global trend of, you know, rethinking what means progress, what means, you know, your identity, what means your political identity. You, are, you know, you also have a global trend of kind of civilizational identity. And so that's something that we see clearly in Western Europe of people rediscovering their religious identity just to say that, they want to protect some cultural feature of their own in face of globalization. So I think it's also a reaction to, you know, globalization and this idea that, you know, everything would become equal and uniformized and kind of cosmopolitan and people need roots. Right? <laughs> but why people, is, yeah. And, and that uh, completely understandable, but why is then the response a return to religion? So you have sociologists of religion who think that it's the end of the Cold War and this kind of, you know, end of history narrative, this idea that, okay, you know, liberal democracy won and that's the kind of only trajectory of development and progress that we have. I think these ideas are getting more and more challenged and <laughs> or are partly failing. And there is, people are searching for things that give them meaning, you know, who are you? Why do you live? what will happen, the, the transmission between generation, you know, the connection between your individuality and the community. So I think we have reached, and here I'm talking really like kind of the, the Western world, the level of individualism is so high that people need feelings of community and religion is one of them that I think is pretty easy to get reactivated. What's again, not as a face, it's not necessarily means people really believe in God you know, really go to church, but that it's, you need some cultural feature of your identity that allow you not to feel alone in your own kind of individualism. So I think it's a, it's a reaction also to, to the kind of excessive, maybe what people interpret as in a kind of excessive individualism, death of ideology, excessive consumer, consumerism <laughs> also, right? Wow. People need, yeah, not only to consume, yeah. they also need to feel they are human beings. <laughs> 
So funny. Nietzsche's turning in his grave. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. He has become, you know, Nietzsche and Heidegger have become again really yeah. big names the, in a lot of these movements. Yes. I, I, th I think her name is Bethany McLean, but she's a documentary maker in the UK. And she did a documentary on Nietzsche and finished the show with this outtake um, that basically concluded that we live in, in a Nietzschean hell. That, in fact, the death of God resulted in the, the God of consumerism and individuality and so forth. Are you yourself religious? Um, I, I, I wouldn't answer that question. Not, not really. I mean, I'm not practicing. But I think, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's a revert, that we are reverting, right? We don't go back to the past. We are kind of reinventing new ways. But it's not going back, right? People don't go back to church. Right, it's a way of reinventing some element of your identity that may have some religious feature, but this religious feature has been individualized and secularized, and it's very kind of new age type, right? You take a little <laughs> bit of that doctrine, a little bit of another yeah, doctrine, true. and then you, so you mix things. It's not reverting to past things. How how interesting would it be if another great monotheism sort of sprouted up? out of this new culture. Um, the reason I just asked you personally, if you're religious, was to, to uh, follow up by asking what your impression was, whether this is a good or a bad thing, that we are seeing a trend of de-secularization. Yeah, well, it's difficult to judge, right? Because I think it really depends the forms it can take. I mean, for me, it makes sense... For me, I understand people feeling like individualism is not enough, that being a consumer is not enough, that you need an identity that is giving you sense of your own life and your connection with your family, your community, you know, past generations, future generations. So I think people need that and that makes sense. So if it's the secularization in the sense of challenging this kind of consumerist identity, I'm pretty much in favor of that. Doesn't mean that if it's to kind of go back to very exclusive definition of identity with very normative system put on people in terms of, you know, their gender, their sexuality, their identity, their nationality, that I think is, is, is more problematic. But the fact that we have part of the society that don't recognize themselves only as consumer anymore and are looking for other answers, I think that's a, that's a healthy trend. Mm. Okay, interesting, interesting. But is it really all or nothing? You're either a, you're a, um, at the foot of the consumerist gods or you're at the feet of Islam or Christianity. Isn't there a, a new atheism, a good middle ground that Hitchens and Harris, you know, paved for the rest of us? Yeah, no, of course, I think nothing is, is black and white. I think it's a very postmodern eclectic world. So everything is on a scale of gray. Right, you have 50 <laughs> shades of grey yeah, between totally. secularism and, and religion. So I think it's more that. I think on the contrary, that's why I was making the the the, the metaphor, or the comparison with New Age. I think people combine things, right? And people deal with deal with cognitive dissonance. You can be a consumerist and being unhappy to be a consumerist, <laughs> right? You can take some element of religion and refuse other. 
right? You can say you believe and at the same time you don't want the church to intrude into your private life and tell you with whom you could, you should or you shouldn't sleep, right? So I think people are adapting a lot and that's why it's a desecularization trend maybe, but it's not a return to previous religious norms, right? Because people do with deal with normative processes in a much more, in a much different way, right? People want their own normative system to be adapted to their own needs. So it's very individualistic on that. Is there research done that breaks down, say, on a pie chart, which are the particular religions benefiting from desecularization? Yeah, no, absolutely. So usually uh, all Protestant proselytizing groups are really on the high, every kind of charismatic Baptist evangelical Protestant movement are getting, are growing very fast in former Catholic country, in some uh, Muslim countries, even if they face resistance in, in, in China. So I know, for example, in France, which has always been a very Catholic uh, country by tradition, I mean, with a small Protestant, a small Jewish and a, a growing Muslim communities, you have proselytizing Protestant groups that are arriving. So People maybe have been raised as kids in Catholicism, then they get the secular, then they get out of religion. And when they get, go back to religion, they don't go back to Catholicism. They go back, they go to Protestantism, right? So there are some religion that have the capacity or some confession that have the capacities to be more attractive. It seems because they offer, I don't know, community feelings. They preach in a different way. They have some kind of, you know, technological aspects that are attractive. And then Islam is also an attractive religion for many people in the Western world. So you have growing trend of conversion to Islam among uh, uh, some Western countries. On a, on a pie chart, which other religions benefiting most and to what percentage allocation are they benefiting, if that's possible to say? That I don't know if we have that kind of detail. Maybe sociologists of religion would know. <laughs> okay, but, okay. But I don't have that kind of detail. Sorry, yeah. I realize um, this is absolutely nothing to do with what we agreed to speak <laughs> about. But um, maybe tell us a little bit about Mamansk. This is such a appeal, not appealing, definitely not appealing, intriguing part of the world. Um, and you'll explain to us why it is. Uh, but you've also spent a bunch of time there. So I'd love to hear, uh, you know, firsthand what it's actually like to be in this place, which in other places has been voted as literally the worst place to live on the planet. <laughs> well, so, yeah, I've been in several uh, Arctic cities in Russia. Murmansk is really not the worst <laughs> of all of them. You know, it's still a big city, a big industrial city, like 300,000 people. It's still pretty alive. It has a mild climate for the Arctic. Right, because it still has some Gulf Stream, so it's not based on permafrost. You have really worse cities. Norilsk, which is in the middle of Siberia, is probably one of the most difficult, one of the most polluted, one of the most isolated. So that's a very uh, a difficult one. There have been some some very kind of depressed economically Arctic cities like Vorkuta, you know, former Gulag, former mining regions really depressed where people are living like the cities lost a large part of its inhabitants so there are a lot of these kind of post-industrial cities that are still alive in in russia's arctic and it's fascinating to 
both to see how people continue to live there, to see their relationship to this industrial past, their relationship to nature, their vision of, you know, this very 20th century definition on how you can conquer nature and at the same time try to live in very difficult climatic conditions. So, so it's a fascinating kind of experience that you can find probably in some cities still in Canada, but Russia on that is very specific because it's the only country that has so many big cities, more than 100,000 inhabitants above the Arctic Circle and entirely based on permafrost. <laughs> Absolutely unreal, man. What is an anecdote that stands out to you from any of those experiences you've had? So I went twice to Norilsk, and at that time I was studying what I called polar Islam. So how, because I spent years in Central Asia, as we discussed, and so I was interested at looking how Central Asian migrants are migrating to Russia's Arctic cities because they are searching for jobs, and these cities still have attraction. And so I was looking in this kind of very yeah, depressed industrial Arctic city of Norris for the mosque there and discovered that it was the most, the northern, the most northern mosque in the world, even more in the north than the one you can find in, in Canada. And then there were Central Asians and South Caucasian uh, 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 people at the mosque, you know, eating dry fruit and drinking tea you know, mint tea as you would have in the Middle East. And that was a really a great example of a very much more cosmopolitan world, right? Or globalized world, you would imagine, of people from the South traveling so high in the North. Just how bad are the Russian demographics? So the Russian demographics is a complicated thing indeed. It has several elements. So... The first one is not so specific to Russia. It's common to many European countries. It had very small demography, right? Families have very few children, one, chi one child, maximum two. So the, the global kind of capacity of the society <laughs> to reproduce itself without naturalizing migrants is very small. But the number on that of Russia are not lower than, for example, Italy, which also has a very small uh, um level of natality. What is the specificity of Russia is the high level of men mortality, right? Which make on that Russia really specific that the, the, it's still first in the world for mortality of men outside of war or, or conflict, right? So outside but, but of... But are they know, in war or conflict? Well, now they are at war with Russia. Uh, uh, sorry. Now they are at, at war with Ukraine. So of course you have another demography, which is the one... Uh, uh, coming from the battlefront but before oh. that wow so so before the war they had the worst male mortality rate outside oh, yes. of, and what yes. explains that just absolutely since the 90s yes in the 90s so alcoholism has been a big issue and yeah yeah bad quality of life you know uh, um uh, uh, violence, so dr drinking is has been a big issue, right? So, you know, accident on the workplace because of drinking, very <laughs> high level of, you know, road accident oh because of drinking, and then not accessing medical healthcare just because they don't want it to go to hospital. And so this kind of, yeah, tradition in a sense, unfortunately, of, of very short uh, um, male life expectancies, it was in their 
expectancies for men in the 90s were in their 50s. Now I think it's 69. It's pretty low or 65. Wow. It's pretty low for for a Western or European type of society. And now, of course, with the war in Ukraine, you have one more layer, which are, of course, men going uh, to the front and coming back uh, uh, either dead or wounded. And that, on that, the numbers are much more difficult to calculate. So we don't know exactly, but that will have one more impact on this very already difficult demographic situation of Russia. And although it might be self-evident to most of the people listening, could you just explain why that is a problem for a country in the long term to have such poor demographics? Well, you could see it not necessarily as a challenge, right? But Russia sees sees it as a challenge because it's a country that have a vision of itself as a great power. It's difficult to be a great power when you have a very declining uh, demography. So that's one point. The second point is that Russia needs workforce. And so the less you have children, the more you will need to have migrants and if possible, qualified migrants coming for your workforce. So the workforce issue is becoming one big issue for Russian economy, for example, to deal with the, 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 the future prospect. Right. And then you have the question of, OK, if your demography is not good, then you can decide to be open to immigration. I mean, U.S. is a good example of, of, of a country that is open to immigration. Russia is pretty open to immigration, much more than European country. They have a lot of Central Asian, South Caucasian coming and becoming citizen, but it's still not enough to replace the demography, the global demography. And then these people come usually as non-qualified labor force. And what the Russian economy would need would be qualified labor force. And now with the war in Ukraine, about 1 million more or less, of Russian have left. And it's usually wow. young people, urban, middle classes, yep. IT people. Educated. So it's people, yeah, exactly, who have higher education that are kind of needed for the Russian economy. And some of them are still working, you know. They are no more in Russia, but they still work for Russian companies. Some have went abroad and then went back to Russia. So it's not like they lost entirely 1 million jobs. But you can see that on the long run, they will have difficulties on that front. How good is Russian culture, Russia, at absorbing immigrants from a different worldview, a different religion, and a different culture? Put them on a scale of, say, Australia being the best to like, Saudi Arabia being the worst. <laughs> a difficult exercise. I would say they do pretty well. I mean, so there was a lot in the 2000s, a lot, a lot of uh, 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 violence against migrants coming from far-right skinhead groups, a lot of xenophobic violence. That has been more or less taken under control by the Russian regimes because they realized it was detrimental to them. So all these far-right groups are now all kind of uh, uh, much more reduced under control. Now the hatred is toward the West more than it is toward labor migrants coming from uh, uh, the South. So I would say that has improved. And then Russia has a tradition of being a multicultural society, right? You have 
about 10 to 15 percent of the Russian population, like autochthonous, indigenous Russian population that is not ethnically Russian, that belong to either Muslim minorities or minorities from other backgrounds in Siberia, in the Volga region, in, in, the, in the North Caucasus. So there is some tradition of dealing with multiculturality. So as someone who is coming from France and knowing, for example, how things are tense in France and in Western Europe, I don't think Russia has been dealing so bad. I mean, the, the far-right violence was really very high in scale, nothing you would find in, in Western Europe. But the kind of everyday management of, you know, small tensions around the mosque, around people with different traditions, I'm not sure it's worse than what you have in, in Western Europe. The difference is that in Western Europe, you have a states that have that accept civil society pressure to deal with that while in russia you don't really have a civil society that is active in helping integration of migrants and defending them how significant is the far-right violence in russia because there's also far-right violence in each european country it's just such a small minority that it's not taken seriously as a genuine problem um is it on the same scale in Russia or is it, was it a lot bigger? So it was a lot bigger in the 2000 until the 2011, 12, and then the regimes really repressed far-right group, put them under control, disband them, send their leader to jail or they went in exile, kind of closed the website. So you still have some xenophobic violence against migrants, against Jews against Roma, but it's really now it's it's just a, on a very small scale. But you have another kind of violence, right, which is the one produced against Ukraine. But it's not the, if we talk about the classic kind of xenophobic violence against migrants, it's very much under control now. Hmm. Can you give the two sides first, the bearish case, Russia 2030, and then as well, the bullish case, Russia 2030? So the um, let's begin with the pessimistic scenario um, of uh, Russia that would be really economically would have been destroyed by the war in Ukraine and the sanction would have been unable to manage a way of exiting the war and finding a kind of a, a ceasefire, at least if not peace agreement, and a Russia that would have intra-elite fight. For example, Putin would have died and then you would have intra-elite fight and that would accelerate or trigger the collapse of the state with, you know, regionalist movement, ethnic minorities trying to get independence or some, you know, private militia working, you know, walking in the streets of some cities. So very kind of um, both collapsing and failing and at the same time, very kind of nationalistic or fascist you know, state and a society that would have really lose everything they have positive they have been building uh, uh, over the last three decades. So that's the kind of pessimistic scenario. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The the optimistic scenario, but still realistic, and you will see it will not be a scenario of uh, a, a nice, uh, friendly to the West <laughs> democratic Russia, because that is not, <laughs> Fair I enough. think, it's the plan. Would be Russia find a way to exit the war without being uh, uh, too much attacked, find a way to not reopen, not rebuild relationship with the West and avoid sanction, but find a way to normalize the kind of Cold War type 
relation is able to partly relaunch its economy and move it away from the military industrial complex back to more kind of you know, modernization aspect and the regime slowly accepting to not to open democratically because I think that's not in the plan, but you know, to have less um, hawkish figure in power and more kind of technocratic civilian figure who try to move away from the worst uh, uh, aspect of the regime and go back to what, in a sense, what the Putin regime in the early 2000s, something much softer, much more in agreement, you know, much more accepting globalization, looking for economic modernization and allowing the society some room of maneuver. So that would be the most optimistic scenario that I think we can hope for you for, for the forthcoming decade. Fantastic. I absolutely loved that. Um, you've spent a career making sense of Russia and Central Asia. So as you consume everything that is being said around Russia, Central Asian countries, not only around the war, but also culturally and everything, what is something that is consistently wrong about that? I think there is a tendency to either feel that Russia is still very much in control of everything happening in, in Central Asia. So we tend to see, you know, the Kremlin's or Moscow hand on everything happening in Central Asia, which I think is wrong. And then also the contrary, to think that Russia is no more influential in Central Asia, that it's a totally kind of past, things from the past. And I think both extremes are wrong. Right, you have a very complex relationship of a former colonizing power and former colonized uh, country trying to build new relationships, still having a lot of contact even now in the war uh, context of Central Asian countries trying, you know, to take the most they can from Russia and push away Russian pressure, trying to find their room to talk to the West without not showing that they are too much or. Uh, so much in, in, in Moscow orbit. And at the same time, you still have a lot of human, you know, people to people connection, cultural connection, labor migration still are a big element. Economic links are still important. So I think it's much more nuanced than what is usually said between the two camps, those who think that Russia is still in control and that, that those who think that Russia has disappeared from the relationship to Central Asia. <laughs> And from your understanding, no one knows, right? But from your understanding, how much is the war tipped in favor of Russia versus Ukraine at this moment when we speak, 28th of November, 2023? So I think at that moment, it's probably the moment in almost two years of war where it's pretty good for Russia. Right, It's probably the best outlook for Russia we had since February 24, knowing that, not in the sense that Russia is doing great on the battlefield, right? They are not moving forward. They didn't conquer what they wanted to conquer. But economically, they have been managing the sanction pretty well. And so they have an economy that is still able to sustain the war effort, probably for still some few years. While on the river side, Ukraine more or less failed its counteroffensive. And I think it was 
we could be prepared to that. And I think many people wanted the audience, the Western audience, to be prepared for that. But of course, Ukraine also wanted to try to play the momentum and say they would have big successes. And the problem is that when you try to be super ambitious, you also have to deal <laughs> with failure when you you you, you couldn't uh, succeed. So I think now Ukraine looks much more in crisis. You can feel tensions uh, uh, politically between Zelensky and some of um, his uh, uh, military elites. It's not going well on the battlefield. The population is exhausted. It's difficult to find, you know, men to go to fight. And of course, the Western support is, it's not fading at the, elite level, right? The policy decision level in Europe, but you can see in the US it's getting part of the political game that we have between uh, uh, Republican and Democrats. You can see the Congress is kind of less interested in supporting Ukraine. They are busy with domestic issues. They are busy with uh, what is happening between Israel and, and Palestine. And then in Europe also, you have a kind of you still have a majority of European public opinion in favor of supporting and giving assistance to Ukraine, but you can feel it slowing down and, and slowly domestic issues are becoming much more important. So, so I think it's a very difficult time for Ukraine. They are very bitter and, and disappointed with the West, which unfortunately I think was, it was unavoidable. So it's arriving now and it will, they will have to reinvent a way of fighting or negotiating with Russia without feeling that they are losing, you know, what really matters on their side. And I think that's all the the discussion now you can see arriving about is that time to launch a discussion for a ceasefire or not yet. It's about, you know, how do you help Ukraine to sustain and survive just demographically and economically and not collapsing on the battlefront without giving the impression that Russia won, that Russia's aggression get uh, kind of legitimized. So I think it's this kind of dilemma for the, the Western supporter of Ukraine to try to find a way to help Ukraine like dealing with the, the, the crisis without giving the impression that Moscow uh, is winning by just getting the territory, the conquered, kind of validated by a ceasefire. Is there any truth to the idea that Russia are so poor demographically that they will have to eventually make a trade-off between continuing a war, sacrificing the young men um, versus any type of competitive future in a globalized economy? Mm, yes and no. So I think for the bat like keeping the battlefront as it is, I think they have enough men. They still have, it's a big country, right? It's uh, 140 million people. They still have capacity to pressure part of the population, the provincial rural Russia to go to fight. So they have enough men. They are on the defensive. So it costs less men than when you are uh, conquering, right? To be on the defensive. So I think the, the demographic pressure on the, for the war, for the battlefront is on the Ukraine, Ukrainian side because Ukraine is a smaller country. Demographically, they lost a number of men. And if they want to be on the offensive, it's costing them a lot of men. So I think Ukraine is a more difficult situation demographically than Russia is. But of course, on the long run, Russia is jeopardizing its future as a kind of economic great power or modernizing global power by sending men to war, 
or by sending them abroad by, because they are immigrating. So there is this trade-off that, of course, they are kind of reducing their prospects for economic development in the future because they put all their money and their men into the military-industrial complex. But on the short run, I think the pressure is on Ukraine. There's a very famous Winston Churchill quote. Um, Russia is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. I asked Peter Pomerantsev about that, and he said he hates it. It's a preposterous quote. Um, but I would just love to hear your reaction to that quote from Winston Churchill. Yeah, also, I'm not a big fan of, of that <laughs> quote, right? I think there have been a tendency of wanted from the West to interpret Russia as something mysterious and, and kind of projecting a kind of, you know, exoticization of Russia. And I think if you are a social scientist or an historian, you feel that Russia, at least that's the way I feel, that Russia is sharing a lot of features with with um, European societies, of course, with their own specificities and maybe with some extreme cases. But I think there are many tools that social sciences and humanities are giving us to show that Russia is a normal country and that we shouldn't play this kind of exceptionalism uh, card because it's very culturalist. It's maybe what the Russian regime is interested in playing also because they also like to brand themselves as exceptional. But I think it's something we should be deconstructing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's something to deconstruct. Okay, you've done many, many interviews. I wonder whether you always leave them thinking, I wish they had asked me this question. Well, not so much. I'm really, I enjoy the way we have been discussing and beginning with Central Asia and the Arctic too, and then move to, to the war. So no, I don't yeah. have... I and don't, don't forget the thing. religion in between as well. Absolutely. <laughs> in that case, then I've got two more questions for you. The first is if you could reflect on the role that serendipity has played in your life. The role of what? Serendipity. I don't know that word. Let me let me get a quote. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, it's fine. It's um it's a very bad quote I've been given. It's a fantastic, beautiful word which refers to the random walk of life. For example, this call ends twenty minutes later than it should have. You go to walk down to the shops and you happen to bump into someone. This becomes, you know, the best friend you'll ever make. Had this show gone on an extra minute, you never meet. Your life is totally different. So that is I a see. moment of serendipity. So I just wonder the role of serendipity in your life. A pretty big role, I must say, both in my personal life and also in my professional life. The fact that I begin studying Russian when I was a teenager that was also arrived by kind of succession of kind of hazard and, and, and meeting, encountering uh, uh, people, spend time living in Central Asia, spend time living in uh, Central Europe, going to the Arctic, being a, a, a Paris-based, I mean, Paris-born scholar working in the US. So all that played a big role. Nothing was written. And that's not how I imagined my life would be. So, so I think it has been yeah, a succession of kind of surprises. Beautiful. And in how many alternative universes are you doing something you would have dreamt you could be doing? Or are you in the, the, the best outcome? 
No, I had alternative uh, uh, life or future hope. One was to mm -hmm. be more in politics. I know it sounds <laughs> not very attractive, but that was one of them. And another one was to have been a kind of archaeologist, kind of Indiana Jones type of archaeologist. So, Amen. yeah, doing kind of yeah, yeah, ancient history yeah. in the Middle East and so on. So I missed yeah. that aspect, yes. <laughs> I, I completely echo that, except... I think it falls apart when you realize that these things you discover aren't necessarily magical items and you don't get to, you know, get into gunfights with the Nazis throughout. Um, it's funny. They're my three favorite movies of all time, the Indiana Jones uh, trilogy. And then you go back and watch them as an adult and you realize he should be dead in every single scene. It is the most absurd, ridiculous consequences of luck that gets him out of each. And then you realize, oh, it's... Maybe too romanticized, but for sure, I I, um, I completely echo that sentiment. Um, you live in Washington D.C. Uh, when did you move there? Uh, Twelve years ago. Twelve years ago. Okay, so there's no chance you ever shared a meal with Christopher Hitchens, is there? No. No. Okay. Never mind. Yeah. Then uh, Marlene. Um, my final question, one which I've asked every guest and one which I think you are particularly well-suited for. What is a country you're particularly bullish on and why? That's a good question. I'm a pretty pessimistic person, not for my personal life, but on the international scene. So <laughs> um, I still believe Europe is still the best kind of uh, combination you can get. Uh, but I'm pretty pessimistic on Europe. I'm not optimistic on the US. I'm not on Russia. So, <laughs> wow, that's a tough question to have. I don't know. Surely uh, there's one. There should be one somewhere. <laughs> um, Mongolia? Yeah, Mongolia. Mongolia is a nice. Mongolia is a nice choice. Yes, exactly. Staying kind of close to nature, at the same time developing, being in Asia, and at the same time trying to be looking west. It's a good, it's a good combination. It's maybe also a romanticized uh, um, one. <laughs> okay, me here, guys. Sorry about that. Something happened when we were recording, and the last few minutes uh, are lost. So nothing consequential. We pretty much just wrapped it up after that point. I'm trying to bring a high level of production to these things. Hence, I recorded this little outtake. See you next week, legends.